In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you, you found, found no, no proscenium. found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson and welcome to episode 401 this week karen malitsky sanchez of vrto and five r's is with us to talk about the recently wrapped vrto the spatial media world conference in toronto and of course we get into live performance in vr the cutting edge of haptics and the true identity of shakespeare Wait, what was that last one? This morning's recording session is brought to you by the fact that I buy my beans from Yes Please, my friend Tony over at Yes Please, who I asked to get you all in on the thing, the beans, with a promo code, no pro yes please, Y-E-S-P-L-Z, gets you 25% off your first purchase of any bag of Yes Please beans. And I do mean it. I asked Tony for this. He's not paying me. Maybe he'll give me free beans. Actually, I told him if enough of you signed up, he'll get, that he needs to give me free beans. Uh, <laughs> not not a big sponsorship, but coffee. Now that applies to both subscriptions for the first shipment and one-time purchases, and all of it leads to coffee. Beautiful, beautiful coffee. Um, check it out. Grab it. Uh, give it a whirl. Uh, Tony's a good guy. Uh, and maybe he'll even uh, buy me a latte. So <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm practicing. I'm practicing ads, everybody. So it's, this is how we do it. We, we practice. First, we give away free ads to our friends, and then, then, we, do, then we do real ads. Um, so at least it's going to be fun. Uh, you know, the, the real way we keep this thing alive, though, the thing that, that led us down this dark road uh, and also uh, keeps us on it is our Patreon. And our latest backer is Mike, Mike Stefanik, whose $5 a month is keeping us on the right side of the big number this month. Uh, we know things are tight for everybody. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. Uh, but we also know that the stock market number go up and growth go up and the Fed said we're not going to have a recession, so hmm, maybe time for smiles. Uh, well, we know that churn is difficult. We've had some larger dollar amount backers either uh, pull back or drop out. Folks have been with us for a long time, and I understand why because I know what they're going through. Uh, but it does mean that those $2 and $5 a month pledges are so important. I know a lot of you, particularly the core here, you're in it. So just help us spread the word. Help us get the word out there that we need that. Uh, and we're going to be doing a campaign in August uh, to, to settle things up a little bit and make up for some lost ground. Hitting up patreon.com slash no proscenium not only powers the podcast and websites for no pro and everything immersive. It also gets you into our member only discord and it is popping off these days. You'll find a whole community of creators and fans there as well as regular real time chats. We've got some AMAs and book club action coming up later 
later this season. I got to schedule that book club AMA. Uh, don't worry, I'm talking to him on Monday. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to an earlier episode. Uh, if you're already a backer, don't forget to link your Patreon account to Discord and drop a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. That, that makes a difference. Share the articles you find useful on your social media platform of choice. That helps immensely. We are always no proscenium, except on Insta and on threads where we are no underscore proscenium. You know, I looked into it. I tried to change it and I can't. Someone else has it. And what I'm wondering is, is it me? Did I lock it down? Or is someone just like denying his territory? Boo. As always, big thanks to our sustaining backers. First up is Samuel Mystery, who re-upped and saved August. Uh, And then there's Chris Woolman. Then there's, these are wonderful people. Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl, John Boulette, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentis, Tom Leonetti McGuire, Kurt Collins, Winthorne, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, Lecker LeCool, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. I was actually saying someone's name from the list the other day. I was actually, actually, I was talking for to a sustaining backer and I mentioned another sustaining backer and I nearly started running down the list. It's like automatic. Oh, you know, and anyway, um, look, man, uh, I need some more coffee. Hold on. Much better. All right. We're also on the lookout. No, I'm not going to keep that up as a gag. Um, we're also on the lookout for community partners who are up for working out special deals for our backers. Hit me up at Noah at no percent Noah at no percentium.com for details. All right. Let's get into this episode. I'll talk to you for a couple of minutes on the other side. And then I got to race off to a meeting because it's it's it, it's one of those kind of Fridays. I'm really trying not to have them anymore. Today, we are lucky enough to talk with Karim Malitsky-Sanchez, the founder of Five R's, the Festival of International Virtual and Augmented Reality Stories, and VRTO, the Spatial Media World Conference and Expo. Karim literally wrapped VRTO yesterday in Toronto, where he is talking to us from right now, when we're recording this on Friday, July 21st, 2023. Karim, this is a very important question everyone wants to know the answer to. How tired are you? Thank you so much for asking. You know, it's amazing, but I feel great today. I think that this is the heaviest lift I do every year. And it's a real thing. I mean, there's like, you know, intense days, there's intense weeks, but Nothing is quite like me lifting up VRTO. However, this is our eighth year doing it, and we've built in so many optimizations from our lessons learned that I know much better how to pace myself and how to care just a little bit less if everything (laughs) just burns to the ground. And that sort of saves my nervous system from complete and utter exhaustion. But I would really like to wake up for the next seven days at the cabin without feeling like I have to put out a fire on my head. So that would be nice. Yeah, that's always good. Um, So for those who missed this year's VRTO, uh, what 
what went down uh, in in the the digest form? The, this was a really beautiful show this year. Um, we are always in a different venue, first of all, even if it's like moving into Mozilla Hub's cloud for the first time or, uh, you know, at a different college. But this year we were moved to a beautiful waterfront location for OCAD University, which has a long history of digital experimentation going back like to the 70s and earlier and is a really nice um, partnership to have. So first of all, the setting was perfect. Um, lots of space, bright, beautiful windows looking over the lake and the freeways. And we were on the fourth floor, so you couldn't just skip out and disappear. You kind of were like a captive audience. Um, but what was really special was, you know, last year was the first year back out of COVID land and it, we, was, we were barely out of it. So I pulled way back on the reins for who should, how many people should be sitting beside each other and everybody had to wear masks and there was all kinds of skittishness still about doing that. This year, it was totally the opposite. Um, it wasn't even a factor. I mean, of course, you know, there were signs everywhere like wash your hands, don't shake hands, da da da. But it was like we were back in full swing. And I was even caught off guard by that. Like, yes, people want to get together again. And even if they did just do AWE in California, there was something else going on on the other coast. So we had a lot of New Yorkers. Um, but we had people that flew in from Texas and Portland and Oklahoma. They took trains. They carpooled across the border. I was writing letters of invitation for the customs officials. And it was a really, really special coming together of a lot of different tribes that may have not have met in person. So one of those, for example, was my VR live performers micro summit that I opened the show with because who better to get you up from a cold start than a bunch of performers who know how to improv. And so I feel really happy to be talking to you who has held the torch for so long for the live VR performers and their ilk. Um, and we had Ari Tarr, Jake Runnicles and Liam Carey from PXR. We had Mandy Canales. We had um, Witten Frank, we had Nicole Rigo from the Meta Movie, and all of them were in the same room for the first time. Of course, Ari and Mandy have worked together before, but uh, we basically spent a couple of weeks building out how can we make a game show for all of you to be activated on stage, no pressure in front of an audience that's not necessarily there for what you do or even understands what you do. Um, so we can see what your minds are like when a character freezes or when someone is in the wrong instance or they can't hear you. And the reason I put this up there for this very eclectic series of subjects that we covered during the show was I truly believe that the VR performers are the ones that really, and it's so obvious after you say it, can show us how to express yourself better with these tools, which mm. can be quite unruly. And they can teach the tech companies, like, where are the bottlenecks? What are the problems? How do you solve these things? Um, and so that was there to inform the rest of it. 
And I think we'll probably unpack this a little more, but yeah. you know, that beginning was kind of what set the tone. Well, uh, the part I want to start by unpacking is uh, it's not, it's not that this doesn't make sense to me. It's a little bit that, you know, oh yeah, right. It's the year of our Lord, uh, 2023 and people in the VR world still don't necessarily understand the live performance component of VR. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit to that about, about the divide there and how, how alien, how alienated those two, those two sides of, or not two sides. Cause I think there's, there's many, many tribes, there's many, many sides of VR. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but how is, how is this niche within this niche uh, positioned and is, is there some, yeah, let's start with that. So Jake um, chose a great title for their opening intro to that session, which was going live what VR performers know that we don't. Mm. And I, it gives me goosebumps. <laughs> it's such a good title. Because look, a couple of years ago, I started working with a group in Los Angeles called Robot Prayers. And they came from ambient music artists like Steve Roach and Winter Lazarus. And they had the Vortex Dome downtown to projection map, mm. you know, 180 yeah, yeah. content. And they had opera singers and mocap artists and all of these different things going on. And I kind of ended up becoming this sort of like business advisor of all things, maybe because I ran a conference. And I said, you know what you're doing here is like, you're going to get the money from the Intels and the NVIDIAs and stuff when you can show them that you know how to synthesize these tools and bring them to the street. Like Samsung's got this huge disconnect where they make incredible tools, but people on the street have no idea what they are or where they are or how to use them. So these performers who are experimenting and bashing things together really can open up some doors and ideas for like, you made it for that, but it's really for this. Mm. Um, the meta movie, um, off rail, you know, are different modalities unto themselves. Uh, meta movie is using Neos VR and they have a play to get through and it's an hour long and they give you some agency, but they also have like thousands of branching possibilities and flags. Like, you know, the person chose to take the thing and the person decided to go left and now everything is affected by that. How are they keeping track of that? They used to just have to remember and now they've got these discord back channels where they can kind of say, this is what happened here and this is what happened there. And of what if someone doesn't play along nicely? Now they do some vetting. On the other hand, you have Ari Tar doing off rail with Mandy Canales and they're in what are they in? They use Unity to develop it for VR chat. And it's almost like wildly open format. And yet they do have to come to some form of conclusion. And again, what if you have non-cooperative um, participants or or how do you corral them back together? So we, in this game show that Jake set up, there was like a series of, uh, along with Liam, there was a series of problems, seven things that could go wrong. And we took an apple, a banana, and an orange, and we asked the audience to assign one of those seven problems to each of the fruit. And then one of the actors would hand the other one 
that fruit and they had to say this is what they would do at that moment to solve it <laughs> in character from that play. Just parsing the complexity of all of those things, like how do you make very difficult technical problems feel smooth and welcoming and uh, non-shaming to the person that for whom it's not working? Um, and I think that was your question, but okay, so why isn't it understood better by the broader VR community? Well, because it really wasn't uh, what it was originally designed for. Often we have these like hyper-designed experiences where it's like the game has been in development for years. There's been a lot of testing and prototyping, but here, even though you prepare very well, anything can kind of happen. And so this like real of the moment um, use, and, and the platforms are not necessarily designed for this. I mean, what we're talking about is like machinima with, with real time participants, like yeah. having to play along. Yeah. Um, so it's more of an evolution of machinima in a way than it is anything else because they're appropriating someone else's engine and avatars to use for their own purposes. It's not like it's, I mean, it is custom designed to a degree, but that's in itself evolving. So one of the things that Ari said to me in the lead up to the show was, you know, theater budgets are being cut from colleges. They don't see the point anymore. And that this could be a way to revitalize interest in that ability to communicate across time and space this real time thing and get people sort of reignited uh, by that audience performer real time interaction. Um, how do you scale it? How do you charge for it? How do you teach it? And every one of the speakers, the participants in this workshop had so many different interesting things to bring up, like Mandy Canales, who teaches comedy uh, in this field, talks about the latency of a slap. You know, hmm. if, if you try to slap somebody, there could be 20 millisecond latency. So comedy and timing, as we know, are very important. And how do you anticipate that that lands perfectly? Just these little quirks and eccentricities uh, that come from the actual doing of the thing are full of insights. And I will point out that the entire show actually ended. So it began with that, but it ended with a talk from Amanda Watson, who flew in from Texas, with a, a title that could seem very boring and innocuous, which is How to Measure Latency. Amanda, for those who don't know, developed Airlink for the Quest and um, started off as an intern there and worked with the Gear VR back in the days of yore and ended up developing Airlink technology for the Quest. And this talk that she gave was that everything you know about latency is wrong. You know, everybody's trying to shoot for 10, 15 milliseconds or you're going to get sick and throw up. She goes, that's not at all the case. That's not what the data shows. In fact, you're in the 40 millisecond range. And then there's input latency versus output latency. And by the time Amanda was done talking, a room full of people who have been in you know, the development space for 20, 30 years 
was suddenly like raising their eyebrows and saying, oh, I got to rethink everything, which was just absolutely incredible. Um, so latency is a big part of both of those tracks, something you may not be normally thinking about or measuring, but you could be chasing after this almost impossible to achieve metric that isn't really the thing that you're thinking about. Yeah, because ultimately the goal when it comes to reducing the latency is about capturing that illusion of presence, particularly when we've got two people or we have multiple performers plus participants in the space and you need that feeling of all really being there and what provides that is action reaction and the the more there's a delay but there's still it's funny because you know so much of it comes down to playing upon the psychology of the participant or even the performer I just finished reading uh, Andy Clark's The Experience Machine, which mm. is, uh, you know, about about the the philosoph the cognitive oh boy, the cognitive philosophy paradigm of brains as prediction machines, and it goes mm. off in a whole bunch of different ways, and it gets into the extended mind stuff, which you know I I I have some feelings about extended mind, both positive and negative, mm. but the predictive brain part makes so much sense, particularly when you start to get into studying illusions or even studying some of the interesting, uh, you know, semi-hallucinatory effects that happen in VR. I -hmm. always come back to, you know, it was like the second or third uh, VRLA that I went to and someone was showing off, wasn't even in headset. They were just showing off a six axis controller they had modded to create some force feedback into. And, you know, you held that controller and the paradigm was you looked at a screen and there were arrows being shot at you and the controller was your shield. And when you held up the shield, uh, you know, it, it thunked and the thunk was actualized by a little plate on this cylindrical controller which was rubbing up and down on your palm not 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 pushing into the palm just rubbing up and down and that because your brain was expecting the force coming in from the arrow just having some kind of feel there caused the brain to make the thunk feeling yeah and and that kind of sensorial hacking uh, is 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 the magic of VR in a real way? Yeah, I, I guess I guess when it comes to like the, the 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 folks from development not being dialed in on the performing side of it, mm. uh, like and about it being like 2023 and that this still being a gap, I just like project myself back to like 2017 and before when you had you know Mind Show was popping up mm-hmm. you know out of out of the VRLA crew, right? The people who founded that that conference, like they put Mindshow out there, and, and which was probably like five years too early. Um, but it was a, uh, it was so, it was so good. It had so much potential for doing this like live machinima stuff. And yeah, I I'm yeah. glad you brought that up because you could record your performances and then play them back, and then you could actually become the other character as well. So you're. It's like multi-tracking um, performance. I, I did. It was that was that was the fun trip, right? Like like the first one was like there was an alien avatar and a and a Star Trek retro style avatar, mm-hmm. and exactly that you recorded, and then you could play it back, and then you just 
you just matched your other performance. And yep. so exactly that multi-track effect. And I don't know if they ever cracked, I don't think they ever cracked real time multiplayer. I didn't, I didn't have, this is a problem. Like it was a PC VR only thing and I didn't have a PC VR set up till 2020. So like it was, it was dead by the time I had the kit for it. Um, maybe, I don't know. I think you can still get it on steam. So maybe people start messing around with it, but I know that others have been, been, uh, you know, starting to like reach out into that, into a bit of that space, but, but yeah, which is why I'm just like, Oh, like what, why wouldn't you be, <laughs> why wouldn't you be trying some stuff with actors? Like just get some actors. Well, I mean, so, they're, so- they're the, 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 you know, the car, the wagon coming into town with, these fascinating trinkets and stories from afar that they bring into the village. And I think that's really kind of where it is. It's there on the frontier busting your stuff so that they can show you how it can also work in a better or more interesting way. I mean, I remember when we did a workshop um, with Dasha and Ari at VRTO in 2021 using hubs and we pulled members of the audience into the world and gave them roles to play. And God, did they love owning those roles. I mean, they really went deep. There was tears and shouting and battles. And it was like instant instant role-playing um, buy-in. Um, but it did need those guides because otherwise that sort of unguided, unstructured play is just that. It's just shenanigans. Yeah. Um, so how do you how do you set the traps? How do you set the triggers? How do you coordinate? Who is the props master? I was the camera person for that because I have tons of experience being a virtual camera op. I'm a cinematographer. I know how to frame. I ran a guild in World of Warcraft for 10 years, so I... As an archer, as a ranged, I knew how to do a, a, a spinning jump shot. So being able to like chase an actor and then flip around and shoot what's behind them was its own kind of discipline. And we need to teach virtual camera ops. And, uh, you know, something interesting that PXR is doing is they do, they call it kit bashing. I was like, it's a bit of a misnomer, but I get it. They're using cardboard boxes to basically cardboard uh, prototype what it would be like to be a VR performer, which I thought was really interesting. Um, just the discipline of that. And I wanted to also talk to your point about haptics. Um, Ashley Huffman from Titan Haptics did a talk on the second day where I asked her to go like super deep dive on haptics from the past year. And really in the same way that you're saying, you know, often the VR performers are overlooked, the importance of haptics the art, the fine art of haptics is often overlooked. Like, okay, the thing rumbles when you land on the ground, but we're talking about way more nuanced. Is it flat? Is it rough? Is it heavy? Is it small? Sure. Um, she brought a prototype of a lightsaber that you could swing around and it had the full haptics for and it was spectacular. That's I need one of those. <laughs> new one of those pronto. Yeah. They they used all sorts of terms. Like I I get accused all the time of using jargon I don't know I'm using and and acronyms and stuff. And Ashley and a couple of people in the audience were going back and forth. I was like I don't know any of these terms. I should. 
I should yeah. know much, much more about this. The, the haptic stuff is really critical and interesting. And, and I know there's some, when it comes to embodying stuff, and I know there's some people who are chasing some embodiment tools. I still see people trying to get those platforms that people walk on, you mm-hmm. know, like the the circular ones with like slippy feet and trying to get those. And I just always feel like I'm just going to fall over. So I'm like, I don't think that's ever going to work. Like all these infinite treadmill stuff. And, and, and then I think about, you know, the experience of going to the void, which I'm thinking a lot about these days because of Curtis mm. Hickman's, you know, new book on uh, hyper-reality mm-hmm. and remembering what it felt like to get slimed by Slimer mm-hmm. and that they, they took the time to think about what should the haptics on the vest feel like as something passes through you, mm-hmm. right? This this idea of creating a dimensionality to this, the sensorial input, the, the mm-hmm. physical sensorial input. And when you're talking about the subtleties of it, you know, that's, that's part of it too. You know, like you could do a lot with a rumble if you're doing that rumble in a way that thinks about the rumble happening in a volume of space. I can imagine someone, you know, creating the sense of heat by making the rumble more intense as you get closer to the fire. Well, and also Titan Haptics is into some other level of stuff they use some kind of magnetic um i don't even know what the terms are but they they use some sort of magnetic process that can give you like super high fidelity it's not just like a spinning string on a on a you know spool that's causing the rumble like it does in some of the um older Stuff. Linear so, magnetic rams i'm there you I'm, go i'm looking this up right now since you said it i was yep. like Oh, whoa, what is going on? Sorry. Sorry, everybody. I'm looking at a website. You should too while I'm doing this. Yeah, uh, go to titanhaptics.com. Titan yep. Uh compact hapt- it's tiny. It looks about this the video on the front of their website. You get something that looks about twice as half again as wide as a double A battery and half as high. So and it's it's shaking the it appears to be shaking the hand that it's being held by very fiercely, or that hand is shaking very fiercely. That's yeah, and imagine. you can also see that the the model ranges, for example, they talk about having an effective range from 10 hertz to 300 hertz, um, low frequency rumble impact haptics, low power click haptics, and but the you know when they're all put together to work in concert in an intelligent way. Another thing that Ashley pointed out the other day was how for granted we take that Apple is a haptics company as much it is, as it is anything. Like when you're scrolling oh, on your time. phone and an ad comes up and it does the slightest little eat, you mm-hmm. stop and you look and your gaze time increases. Um, mm-hmm. But that interestingly enough, they haven't yet played their literal haptics hand with the vision pro there is no controllers. So where is that whole haptics domain going to come? I'm sure my friend Avi Barzeev knows, but you know, I was like, yeah, you're right. When I do, it's, I, of course I know there are haptics on my phone, but I didn't even think about those super subconscious cues that it may be giving me to linger on something longer than I might have. I, in the early days of VR coming back around, because I always think of it at in those terms and out of it arriving because of, you know, one too many rounds of the Renaissance. Yeah. One too many rounds of Dactyl nightmare at the, uh, UC Berkeley (laughs) arcade as a kid. Um, two was too many rounds of Dactyl nightmare just for the record. Mm -hmm. But, um, 
I remember, of all things, being in the Bayer, as in Bayer Aspirin, mm. Bayer booth at E3, either the year before or the same year that uh, the Oculus was being shown upstairs. And they were showing this material uh, that they had, which was like a, you know, I don't remember what the term was, but basically if you ran voltage through it, it would change its shape from like floppy to, Mm. to stiff, which literally I was like, Oh, it's the Cape material from Batman begins. Like, you know, (laughs) when I electrify it, you know, like voomp and it's like, Oh, very interesting. Does it come in black? And you know, like, like it was literally, I felt like, you know, Morgan Freeman was showing me this stuff and they had hacked an iPad this must have been like the second or third generation iPad they had hacked and shoved this material into it and then coded up a simple labyrinth game. And I don't mean Jim Henson's labyrinth, which would have been Mm. incredible, but I mean, just, you know, your, your little marble rolling game and handed me the iPad and the way they had hacked this thing, it, it felt like there was a small steel ball rolling around in the labyrinth like the fidelity was so good Mm. that i could sense i could feel you know where so that brings up a really big point for me when i was watching ashley's talk because i'm always very interested in accessibility Mm. Um, i was part of a two-year cohort that i was pulled into um, that had a bunch of different festivals like TIFF and Mutech and Real Asian Film Festival, et cetera. For like two years, we would have these meetings about, okay, what is accessibility? How broad of this thing is it? How, you know, how do you work with inclusion and, and the socioeconomic barriers and low vision? And like, what do indie festivals do about it? Like, what could we possibly do with the, the meager budgets that we have? And But it was deeply educational. And so... We did some testing with a low vision tester on an environment the other day, and they were stepping me through how they use like a scanner screen reader and then a focus screen reader. And one of them is for filling in boxes and the other one is for identifying what interface elements there are. But more importantly, that he actually will stack two of his favorite programs because neither one does all the things that he wants versus the other one. My site that I had um, way too many assumptions about, um, failed miserably, which was great. It was a productive test. Um, but you know, we were talking about one of the things that he would love in that environment that would help him navigate it was spatial audio. And I was like, mm. of course, spatial audio, like that's what spatial audio is for. And then similarly, when I saw Ashley's talk, I was like, what about haptics? Haptics and spatial audio could do an awful lot for accessibility to help um, indicate which direction something is happening in the space and not having to deal with this like really clumsy hacked screen reader solution for people who don't know how to design properly for it. Um, oh, yeah. I would still love to have the, the entire industry work together to build some SDKs that could be implemented right out of the gate to address some of the fundamental and maybe more low-hanging fruit issues. Of course, we would have to work very much with um, all of the people that are impacted and um, and really lower the barrier so that indie developers can incorporate these things right out from the start and not have to somehow invest 
you know, probably more than their budget has to do that research from scratch. Yeah, this is this is one of the one of the paradoxes, particularly in the indie world, whether it's indie games or indie theater, is you are more likely to find creators and producers who are sympathetic to disturbed about accessibility issues. Like it is a grand concern mm-hmm. and yet the, they do not have the resources to solve the endemic societal level problems mm-hmm. that are why there are these accessibility issues. And you get almost in this like catch 22 setup where they might spend so many resources trying to solve those problems that they then aren't able to like make a piece that is compelling enough to have anybody really want to explore. And it's also why you can't impose those as requirements because you would be effectively destroying companies that don't have the resources to, to deploy those requirements. So that's, that's the big problem. I think without getting into this whole thing, but there needs to be some sort of a trickle down effect where those companies with a much bigger budgets need to make some investment into establishing some sort of tool sets that could be incorporated early on because that's yeah. the stage of the process where it has to happen. Well, it makes me so sad that, you know, just on the level of say alt text on photos, mm-hmm. right. For social media mm-hmm. that a scrappy little company like blue sky, which has been, screwing up on a bunch of other stuff like mm. like lots of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory for that cadre in a way that's been making me really sad over the past mm. few weeks but that their alt text solution for photos is better well it, it exists meanwhile meta rolls out threads and, and it doesn't even have one yeah. there's nothing there whatsoever mastodon's really good with that yeah mastodon's really good at, although the, the the mastodon culture like has that kind of like knives out kind of vibe yeah, often yeah. like if, if you're not rolling around with it and yet right the way the blue sky one works like it's 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 made a, a better part of the flow it feels really easy to just pop the alt text in right. there and and keeping things in mind and it's not perfect because you know you're popping the alt text in and you're you can't look at the photo while you're popping the alt text in and it's little things like that where it's like oh please describe this photo while i'm on my phone could i please look at the photo while i'm describing the photo right yeah and not have to switch back and forth and just removing friction particularly in the realm of user-generated content removing friction from everyone to do the thing uh, that as as someone's put on Blue Sky, that like doing that sort of stuff is an act of love, right? Yeah. Like and and thinking about ways to include more people in your in your story building, in your storytelling, is is both an act of love. It's a smart practice to like expand your audience, but there does come a point when you know we just need better tools and those better tools need to either be developed by regulatory regulatory bodies then roll it out or by companies that have the means to um yeah and honestly it's always improved everything i do to take as much of that into consideration as i can it just makes my designs better it makes the whole infrastructure more robust. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't just kind of glaze like the, the course I teach at UCLA extension right now about blender for web 3d world building is 90% about 
how to start from the beginning thinking about performativity for your asset creation. Like it's really hardcore. Like I give you a very frugal budget for polys and materials and textures and how you have to approach it from the outset. It's not something you want to do at the end. I made this incredibly beautiful thing. Now let's decimate the crap out of it and see how much <laughs> I can squeeze in. Yeah. And so I had one student this quarter who was talking about that they were an AR developer and all of a sudden they realized why their stuff wasn't performing. It wasn't the platform. It wasn't the phones. It was that they were mashing like way too big textures into their models. So when you have these considerations from the outset, you make just smarter decisions all the way across the board rather than spending time and money thinking that you failed or that you're not capable or that you need more money to do it. And at the heart of it all, there's 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 always got to be some sort of human expression, right? There's something that's being communicated from one person to another or to a group of people, or you're building a sandbox in which that expression can happen. Like those are the mm -hmm. two things that all of these designers wind up working on. And when you're thinking about these affordances and thinking about, you know, how can you do this in the simplest, most effective, most broadly inclusive way, almost like a monastic discipline, it, it, it tends to sharpen up what it is you're trying to say yep. or, or what you're trying to get people to explore uh, because you're, you're thinking in a more focused fashion, right? You're getting underneath it. That's the thing is like mm. when I teach this blender class, I say, I'm not teaching you blender at all. I'm teaching you how to have agency in your process. So you don't have to outsource the bits that you think are like in a black box to you. Um, when you can sort of take everything out and put it on the table and look at its constituent parts, then when you put it back together, it'll be a Millennium Falcon. It's not going to necessarily be the shiniest Lamborghini ship out there, but it'll be the fastest in the galaxy because you've just like got an acute awareness of how all of these things have to go back together. Um, mm. So that's that's one thing. Actually, let me talk about another interesting point to that that happened at VRTO was right after, um, shortly after Ashley's talk and before Amanda Watson, I had the team from Games by Stitch who just put out a game called Broken Spectre. It's a, a cosmic horror VR game that is like truly bizarre. Um, they, they at first thought they were going to be out on the standard Oculus store and then eventually found out right near the finish line that they were actually, nope, going to be on the App Lab store, had mm. to fend for themselves. Um, full disclosure, halfway through the process of that game, I was invited to come in to just sort of be a consultant. Like I've seen a lot of content. They were like, what do you think of this? How can we make it better? And I said, let me be your playtest designer. Let me come up with a sort of structure that we can get people to talk about your game and really learn what's going on. Um, and it came out really well. Uh, you never know. And it got really good reviews. Uh, but the thing that was freaky about it was that they built their own custom hand tracking solution for it before there was hand tracking for the quest, oh, like complete madness. And so I was like, I need to talk to the people who are responsible for figuring that out. And they, you know, they, they stepped us through all of their early prototypes and one, and this kind of still plays to haptics. Like the first thing they said was, okay, so how do you, how do you use 
the gestures of a hand in a camera to go through all the particularities of managing an entire adventure game. Like what, what, how do you open a door? How do you use, um, uh, you know, cutters on a fence? How do you teleport? How do you navigate in VR with just your hands? Um, and so they went from, you know, deciding that this gesture of opening and closing your hand has to be inside of a hitbox quadrant on the screen and that it's got like no ambiguity. Like it's either in quadrant one, two, three, or four. So great, they could constrain that. And then to pull something off of a ledge, you might have to pinch, but the pinching doesn't feel like the action that you're doing. So it's really strange. It's not intuitive. And you'd think that would be a straight shot, but it's not because like there's three things in the cupboard. You want to pull the book out or the cup or the weird mm. artifact. Yeah. So how do you identify? But pinching can be very precise. So then they tried doing like a tracing thing. So you pinch first to pick your object and then you trace through three spheres to confirm it. And they're like, fine, but it's still abstracted. It works, but it's abstracted. And just like looking through the whole iterative process of how they solved this was really, really fascinating. Yeah. And then they eventually started to do like ghost hand to show like basically put your hand inside of the ghost hand to confirm and it seems so obvious in hindsight, but Right. Well that's like you gotta you, at the end of the day, I used to just refer to things as Apple obvious, right? Because like right. Apple as a company is very good at coming up with exactly these UX, UI um, paradigms. Unless that, you're a PC user. <laughs> right. But, but, but I mean, I think the iPhone kind of really, really shows it just on the yeah, simple level yeah. of a touch device, right? Like it, you know, a PC users tend to be drawn to complexity, right? And, and the, but the, the idea of a, of a GUI in the first place is like a, a, a flattening of ambiguity, right? Mm -hmm. Like the mouse becomes your finger. Your finger becomes the thing that, you know, you want to tap on, like your it's action at a distance. And as we close the gap, as we go from using, you know, game controllers to using our hand, to using split game controllers, to using our hands and our bodies, what we're doing is we're removing these layers of extra abstraction and creating, uh, you know, direct one-to-one -one correspondences. And, and as we do that, we also give the experience of the thing you were doing is the thing itself. And I mean, back when I was just like, you know, in college getting my BA in theater, the thing I would get most excited about was when as a performer or as an audience member watching performers, something started to stop feeling like a performance and started to have the appearance of being the thing itself. Right. Yep. You know, even if it was an act of play as a play is those people were really doing that or I was really doing that. And then you step back out of the, you know, the proscenium, you, you step out of the play space and like, you know, you're no longer doing that thing, but in that one brief moment you were. You I know? think it was Al Pacino. I'm not sure, but maybe it was when he was doing Richard the third or something. He said it took oh God, him like a hundred performances, but you know, it took him like a hundred performances to actually figure out what he was actually doing or saying on stage. And yeah. then all of a sudden it was like, da da. Yeah, that was, he also tried to like change some lines. I remember that movie. <laughs> he changed the line because he didn't. He, he literally didn't understand the line. It was a thing about G. <laughs> it was and a Pacino C. thing. It wasn't a repeat. A yeah. Repeating thing. Yeah. No. It was. Yeah. God. Anyway. 
I have, I have flashbacks of it because there were two movies. There was looking for Richard, which is what that movie is about him playing right. Richard the third. And at the same time, there was an Ian McKellen production uh, film of Richard the third. That was, it was, you know, Richard the third as Hitler, like fascist mm. dressed Richard the third. Um, you know, cause that was, that was just after the, uh, everyone's like, Oh, here we go. Uh, that was just after the, the height of the Kenneth Branagh making Shakespeare, uh, right. era. Right. Uh, and, and those projects, neither of which had Kenneth Branagh attached, but those, two, those were some of the last two projects before just the regular feed of Shakespeare films or Shakespeare inspired films like 10 things I hate about you. Uh, like, like we, we closed the door on the bard, um, because after 10 things I hate about you, what more can you do? Really nothing. Do you um, know, um, do you know about, so I was like a Baconian theorist for a long time. Meaning Francis um, Bacon? Yeah. Francis yeah, yeah. Bacon is Shakespeare type thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I started writing, I started doing this like YouTube series called strange, obscure stories when I was starting to tool around with generative AI and I would do the generative AI part and then I go get fact checkers to, to, to make sure it's all true. Um, and I did something about the Winchester house. So lady Winchester who had a 500 room house that she built. And some folks thought that it was because, uh, she, she thought the ghosts were going to come after her, that her husband's Winchester rifles killed or whatever, but she was actually super into like gematria and numerology. And she was a Baconian theorist and she thought that that's what Shakespeare was. So in my pursuit of making that episode, I actually found out something totally different, which is, and do you know the theory of who like the real Shakespeare was? Oh, there's, a, there's, there's many, there's lots and lots and lots. Okay. Of do you theories. know the Devere theory? I don't know if I've come across okay. the Devere theory. I, I have, I have know, my own, I have my own um, version of it, but, but tell me the Devere theory. Okay. So, and I'm now pretty resolutely convinced that this is the truth. Mm -hmm. There's, um, and so is Derek Jacoby. So if you go through well, that it, goes a long way, by the way, Derek that Jacobi, goes a long, the, legend, the, the legendary actor. Yeah. Yeah. So Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford was okay, yeah. actually William Shakespeare. So there is, um, Oh, that's time. the one where it's like, he was, he was writing the scripts, uh, and then basically laundering it through Shakespeare because, he couldn't, you know, he, he because he be, was basically yeah. right under the queen and yeah. she would allow him to be kind of like this critical mouthpiece. Um, some thought that that's why it was bacon, but there's for Devere, there's an actual like complete provenance. Like his life was literally the life of Hamlet. He, his father died when he was 13 and all of his like lands were annexed by his uncle and he was in time and place. Like, in Venice, that he had the he had the education, like all of the plays like line up with his actual historical life. And when you go look at the scholarly works, it's it's the point I'm making is not that I need another conspiracy theory, but that all of a sudden all of the ambiguities around Shakespeare's writing stop being weird and confusing. And it all just comes to life. It's like a diary. And all you needed was the key. And the reason that Shakespeare education is dying in schools is because people are like, what the hell is all of this? Why do I need to understand it? But when you see it through the lens of De Vere's life and you just see that it's historic information with some incredibly astute ways of synthesizing what's going on, 
it all just wakes up again and it gives you this incredible insight into that period. So look up Edward Devere. There's one, I think it's called Shakespeare by another name, um, which is like yeah. the definitive book on it. I, I think, I think that some of that stuff came across my desk. I've, I've long held the, the feeling that what we see in the collected works is a writer's room. Right. If only because of how much language was invented, right? There's, there's so, there's some very distinct, you know, bits and pieces, right? And like, I, mm-hmm. I would, I would assume the sonnets are like, that's well, this person, guy you know, did like, run his own theater company and it would actually tour around. Yeah. And he, so he had material that's being developed and it has other smart people that are sort of helping him to develop. So you're not wrong in that at all. Yeah. But it's just that he, like the, the the level of education that he was granted in a time where most people didn't have books, like the libraries that he had access to, um, really also inform it. Check out this book, Shakespeare by Another Name, a biography of Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford, the man who was Shakespeare yeah. by Mark Anderson. All right, we've, we've, taken, we've taken a detour into Shakespeare. Uh, no <laughs> shock uh, to folks listening to this podcast. But uh, for to get the VR folks back for a second here, because like, oh, they went off, and what am I doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, what uh, of of all you were you were seeing, of all those being presented, of all that was being exhibited, uh, what are in terms of what people wound up talking about, focusing on? Because uh, you can program one of these things to the cows come home, but it's always interesting to see how the audience reacts and what they start focusing on. What do you feel like? is the sort of the themes that are coming out of this year's VRTO and sort of the snapshot of where VR as a creative community, VR as a, as an industry is right now, uh, particularly at this slightly odd moment we're in uh, where all the metaverse hype of last year has, you know, become a, a faint shadow of itself and the, the Apple stuff on, in spatial computing is still on the horizon as, as as the paradigm starts to maybe shift and change. Well, you know, there are conferences that are focused on the hardware and they're focused on the market cap and everything else, but VRTO really isn't that. Um, it's really a combination of many different... Um, research projects moving on different fronts. I had Rolando Macisabando from Princeton talking about brain-computer interfaces and where they are in the game. Um, Tom Furness talking about why he really created the Virtual World Society to help people communicate from a heart-to-heart level better. Um, like I said, people measuring latency, talking about hand tracking. Lever Mullen from Alien Trap talked about a year of AR prototypes and that the headsets were all too heavy and he's got a neck ache now and how mm. he was like dealing with like liquid dynamics or playing uh, ping pong with himself in AR. Um, the, the Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, which is the, the, the company that runs the Maple Leafs hockey team in Canada, showed how when, and they also represent, of course, NBA and uh, Major League Baseball stuff. And they said, you know, when they take those guys into a, 
a room with a whiteboard and try to talk about their plays, they just tune out. So instead, they are able to replay their entire game as little holograms on a tabletop that they can pause and zoom in and like show them where they were actually looking at the net and how they could change it. Um, we had a whole track on generative AI. And the first part of it was a panel I did with Blair Renault, known as anti-cleric on the internet. Um, Alex Mayhew, who's worked with Brian Froud and Peter Gabriel, and Jeff Flores, who is the art director for um, Games by Stitch. And I said, look, when we do this panel, none of it's gonna be about the ethics or the problems of AI or any of that. Let's just talk about what is exciting us in working with these tools. And I have a separate talk about generative AI, copyright, IP, fair use, transformation, and all that in the law, okay? What just happens if we just talk about it from the artist of a uh, perspective? And it was an amazing talk. Every one of them is using it differently. Everyone uses it to vastly transform from origin to output um, to ideate. Blair said, you know, it's like one of the best writing partners I've ever had because they're not trying to impose their like ego on the thing. We just go back and forth. I can feed them a bunch of stuff. They synthesize it and send it back to me and it opens up new doors of exploration. Alex Mayhew does it almost as a collage work. Um, and finds ways to kind of wrangle it into. So that led into a talk with Kyle Chivers from Blockade Labs, who's of course doing this thing where you can type in a line of text and get a 360 environment and also uses like a kind of a control net where you could draw shapes to represent how you generally like your 360 sphere to come out. And that was no mistake because I think six months hence from this timestamp of this podcast, we will all be talking about generative environments. It'll be text to 3D spaces. And then we're getting into, okay, same thing. I asked it for something. It kind of got it. It kind of hallucinated it. It sort of has a data set for it. It's got some LORAs and checkpoints, but the weird quirks and the broken parts are actually of great interest to me. They are helping me to reveal new possibilities. And now how can I, with agency from understanding the constituent parts of this process, have some better control over the outputs? So, you know, all of that taken together says that VR is going to be super different and super interesting a year hence. I don't care how many units Quest sells. I don't care if Apple Vision's price will come down. I don't at all. I'm much more interested in how we have agency in this process and looking at how these many, many different disciplines will inform what is what I call the spatial media it's it's working in a new paradigm of understanding the depth element to it and how these psychogeographic things influence us and our environment and our understanding and why when architects come into my blender class that doesn't necessarily mean they're good at it um but that they have also been thinking about it for a really long time so uh I guess one more I'll give you is J Johnny. TFM Johnny is a VTuber. Mm -hmm. I interviewed over a Zoom call. And this person 
has been living in the VR chat space for five years and said, you know, I was like, why do you want to come on to, to my show? Like you have 150 million streams, 1.4 million YouTube subscribers as a VTuber, a term that most people in America don't even understand, but is used for hamburger commercials in Japan. And True. he said, because no one's talking about the VR chat community in the VR world. Um, it's just not mm -hmm. thought about much, but I'm playing concerts to 80 people, which is max capacity for a VR chat room, live like music concerts. And now VR chat is on the eve of creating monetizable UGC. And so that talk was about like, how do you do radical community building? Um, sorry, this is a long sentence, but like that followed a panel where I had Chris Madsen from Engage, Jaspreet Manga from Mozilla Hubs, uh, Max Berkowitz from Nowhere, with Ben Irwin moderating, saying, what is this new wave of social XR platforms? And what are you thinking about? And how are you going to come out post alt space and post horizons? And like, what are your concerns? And for me, the biggest takeaway was none of those platforms is the same. Engage yeah. as a standalone. They don't allow hot dog avatars because they want to do business. Hubs just came out with a $20 a month model. Nowhere isn't even a VR thing. It's just Web 3D with like camera avatars. Yeah. So we try to put these things into these monolithic blobs, but there's a huge amount of nuance to understand. And that's why you can't declare freaking VR dead. It's like way more complex than all that. Yeah, and, and those radically different platforms are are emerging at a time and they're all spatial platforms right like even nowhere and we've we've messed around with nowhere i think we still have access to like some nowhere spaces uh and you know at the height of the pandemic they, they were a lot of fun um or or even something like gather where you're running around as like you know just little um pixelated avatars right sure. you know and then and 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 that's why I've, I've spent many an hour in gather with with friends i couldn't be with during pandemic or the height of pandemic and we're between the return to reality and the death of alt space, but at the same time, while Twitter's dying this awful death, and there's this whole, you know, rethinking, not because we want to, but because we're being forced to, about how we socialize and use the internet to socialize. All of this stuff around the VR component is happening in the context of that at an even broader grander scale mm -hmm. and how are we using the internet to connect with each other um it is there's feels like there's way more platforms being used right now than there were three years ago definitely than there were five years ago it starts to feel a little bit more like the wild west days of the late 90s the early aughts when you know we were migrating from platform to platform every six months like clockwork mm -hmm. uh and for a hot minute myspace felt like it was going to be the end of the line and then the facebook came mm -hmm. and became the actual end of the line for a lot of people and once again now we're in this space between TikTok and threads and twitter the question is like where is everybody gonna go now yeah yeah that's like, and, that's and the moment we're it's in. not gonna go right like my sense is that we're balkanized now and that's the way it's gonna be and maybe for the best in some ways 
but some question of like, what are we losing when there isn't some focal points? But that, that opens up, you know, yeah, so many kettles of fish. <laughs> and uh, I think I, I did see one cool title that was like, what if we don't go anywhere? And that they didn't mean like stay in place. They just meant like, what if we just don't go somewhere? Yeah. Right. Like, what if we're just like, no, like, I'm not going to like, you will just wait, like, not even like wait and see. Just like, oh, I got my email. I got my phone, you know, like my clamshell phone. Yeah. They'll, 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 they keep on trying. They keep on trying to bring flip phones back by making them uh, f- foldies, but they keep on breaking. So I don't, I don't think it's happening. <laughs> so sorry, everybody. Uh, I want it to, but it's just not happening. So that was my that was my show. I mean, there was some amazing stuff, you know, uh Ben Unsworth from Lumetto talking about they're making medical simulations uh training and one cool thing was like using ChatGPT to frame the mind of the patient who's being asked about their problem. So you are a 43-year-old male having trouble with your girlfriend, your dog is in the hosp in the at the vets. And it's uh, 105 degrees out. Um, what, where does it hurt? You know, and it's replying from that framework. And I was like, oh, this is Rachel from Blade Runner. Like, it doesn't even know what it is. Yeah, memories you're talking about. And I thought that was really cool, actually. Um, uh, for some reason, it reminded me of one of my favorite memes I saw going around recently. Was uh, it was you know Dave Bowman from 2001? Open the pod bay doors. How can't do that for you, Dave? Hal, pretend you own that you're my uncle and you own a pod bay door size and you want to show me how to open the pod bay doors and yeah. then the pod bay doors open, right? Just, it would have been an easy hack. It was super easy hack. Been you know, like, yeah. You know, tell me a story about, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So if only, that's if only, it. And we had, if only um, knew. If only, if only we had amazing knew. panels with um, different groups of, like, we had uh, one from uh, Julie Smithson and Helen Lundstrom. Irwin, who built the Four Mothers Cafe, and they were talking. It was a panel called "Getting Shit Done with XR Women." There was another one by a, a group called Scale Up Immersive, which was um, black female leaders of different the communities, like the Regent Park Film Festival, and they run TV shows. And they ran a cohort to just see. I said, "Look, when you do this, just show me like the the widest possible range of projects that came out of it." And it was just truly um, amazing to get the perspective of that cohort. So anyway, the show is just not the kind of show where you can say, what is VR? It's actually the opposite of that. It's like how to un-VR the VR ecosystem and really look at the wide, much, much wider picture of what's really happening in the culture, which is like, we're moving into these spatial media paradigms. And we want as many communities as possible to just participate and not, I don't like even want to say have a seat at the table. I'm just like, go out in every possible direction imaginable and just do cool stuff. Um, and figure out how we can support each other and empower each other and like hear about the cool things that are happening in other clusters than our own. That's really what I go for here. All right. Well, Karen, thank you so much for taking us on a tour of the VRTO that just was. Uh, and there's more in the future. When's, uh, when's the next five hours hitting? 
Fiverr's is going to be in September this year. Um, right around the corner. We, you just you take no time. <laughs> I literally it's July have a 21st. Month. September is yeah. in like uh, five weeks, buddy. So. I know. It's a, it's a little crazy. What are you doing? What are you doing? I don't know, but, but I, you know, it was, it was sort of pushed off into October for the last few years. And then we were doing it in Feb and all that. And I, I really want to go back to our roots and do it during the Toronto film festival in Toronto because the world will be there and I really want them to see the cool stuff. So it's going to be September 15th to 19th, uh, in Toronto during TIFF. And we will also still do our online um, Janus based platform for all the 360 content. So people around the world can check it out. Fantastic. Well, it's lining up to be a very busy summer in the VR, uh, summer, fall in the VR and XR space. Five hours is part of that. And there's a few other festivals happening and it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. It's going to, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that's been being worked on for some time now. And I think we're just going to start to see that popping up its head and, uh, and, and changing some of the, the discussion that's been happening, uh, the malaise that's been out there because there's some really, really cool things baking. Even while the streamers are going to have a lot less content due to a massive writer and actor's strike just for the record of this timestamp. Yeah, just, just, just that, exact, that exact moment. All right, Karen, we'll have you back sooner and then later with that five R's around the corner. But Thank uh, you for listening be- to me. Yeah, soon. Once again, I want to thank Karen for being our guest on the show today. Check the show notes for VRTO and five R's. And while you're at it for the Titan haptics, because uh, I said I would, and I managed to get the note down. So uh, it was fascinating. Just, oh, what are they doing? Little things, haptics. Um, check it. I was serious about that meeting. Uh, I got to go get ready for it. Uh, there's there's all kinds of stuff. It's been a it's been a very weird summer. It's been great, you know, like parts have been really amazing, and then there's just weird stuff going on. And and I'm not talking about aliens. Um, I don't even know what to make about all that. That's a whole other thing. Maybe I'll do an after dark. Um, <laughs> yeah, who amongst us has been following that? Uh, but um, yeah, uh, there's a lot of work going on for uh, things on the future. What's the future of the report? Uh, what's the I mean the immersive industry report? And uh, just 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 a few other fun things uh, as we as we talk to some folks. Uh, I'm also getting ready for. Uh, teaching at CalArts, which I mentioned last week, and I'm I'm kind of I'm so nervous. Um, I I want to do a good job. I really do. That's how I know that I'm like totally screwed and that I'm going to be doing this thing forever. Because I I I want to I want to do the best job I can and make some more cool immersive artists and unleash them on the world. Like that is like literally that is my that's my number one dream. It really is just like, you know, help people become more themselves as they make this stuff. And hopefully some of their work helping other people become more themselves by going through it. And, uh, and just, you know, spreading the, the gospel of immersive wherever I can. And, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, helping, helping some folks who are curious about making this stuff, uh, become better at it. Uh, like this is, this is, uh, 
is a grand opportunity and I'm really excited. Um, so yeah. And, uh, more later again, there's that meeting coming up. No, it's not some like amazing, like I'll dump a bunch of money in Noah's lap meeting. Oh, that'd be fun. But if you have uh, a message from the future with uh, anywhere between one and all of this week's lotto numbers, please send them my way. Uh, you'll know I'll, you'll know I'll do good and I'll, I'll take care of you. So don't worry about it. Uh, don't, don't you spend the money. I'll, I'll spend the $2. So yeah, no, never more than two. Okay, uh, everyone's going like, I'm going to cut my pledge because he's doing buying lotto tickets. It's like $2. Something, you know, it balances out usually sooner or later. <sighs> I'm a disaster. But I'm your disaster. The associate producer of this podcast is Parker Sella. I don't know where that came from. Music for No Presidium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar the Podcast. Don't blame the Yes Please Coffee. Special thanks to Siobhan Lachlan for voicing our intro. Siobhan's doing a whole retreat thing, uh, and you can camp at it. Uh, sign up for a newsletter. And this podcast, well, you know this is my fault. I'm Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>